From NPR, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Public health officials now say the big outbreak of influenza among birds in Asia could become a major human health concern. If the bird virus mutates into a form that can easily spread among humans, it could set off a health crisis not seen since the great flu outbreak of 1918. When you get a pandemic flu, in this case one that's fundamentally a bird flu that jumps species into humans, that you're going to have a serious problem worldwide because the level of immunity against a flu that the civilization has not ever experienced before can be catastrophic. And there will be few places to hide. This virus would travel by jet. It would likely break out and circle the globe within six months. The risk of avian flu and more this week on Living on Earth. Stick around. the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Somerville, Massachusetts, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. The flu might have physicians and patients scrambling for shots here in the States, but there's another more deadly form of the disease that's grabbing the attention of health officials here and overseas. 32 people in Southeast Asia have so far died from a strain of avian flu called H5N1. And these recent cases are the first signs that the virus has crossed over from infected birds to humans. Poultry farmers are particularly susceptible to the virus since they are in close contact with birds that could be flu carriers. In Asia, millions of birds have been infected with the H5N1 virus. And scientists worry that if the virus takes a form that could be easily transmitted among humans, it could set off a public health calamity like the influenza pandemic in 1918 that killed 20 million people worldwide. Officials at the World Health Organization recently declared that a bird flu pandemic is, quote, very, very likely and could kill 2 to 7 million people or more and quickly infect up to one-third of the world's population. Dick Thompson is a spokesman for the WHO. This virus would travel by jet. It would likely break out and circle the globe within six months. Joining me now to talk about efforts underway in the U.S. to protect against the virus is Dr. Anthony Fauci. He directs the National Institutes of Allergy and Infectious Disease in Bethesda, Maryland. Dr. Fauci, welcome to Living on Earth. Thank you. It's good to be here. We've just heard how the World Health Organization is estimating that as many as 2 to 7 million people around the world could die from this disease, and some of their folks are saying as many as 100 million. Um, what's your take on the accuracy of those numbers? Well, I, I think they're very soft. It's very difficult to predict. I think it's important rather than to get involved in the analysis of mathematical models for numbers to know that when you get a pandemic flu, namely the emergence of an influenza, in this case one that's fundamentally a bird flu that jumps species into humans, that you're going to have a serious problem worldwide because the level of immunity against a flu that the civilization has not ever experienced before can be catastrophic. It can be millions and millions and millions. It's 7, 10, 15, 20. It's difficult to predict because all flus are difficult to predict. But the one thing you do know that if it is a bird flu that gets into humans as opposed to the normal cyclic every seasonal flu, which in and of itself causes significant problems, 36,000 deaths per year in the United States, and 200,000 hospitalization. That's on a regular year. If you get a situation with the bird flu, it can then go into a very large number of people worldwide. Okay. Now, how does the biology work here, Tony? How does an influenza that 
that goes in birds, how does that get into people? Well, it gets into people by the, the agricultural conditions of people and birds very closely together in farming agricultural communities, particularly in Asia, that there are flocks of chickens, people take care of the chickens, the chickens get sick, the workers are exposed to their respiratory secretions, they get infected, and then ultimately they can infect other humans. It's that step from human to human which has not yet matured to be very efficient. But what we are seeing is that the people who are around the chickens, particularly in the flocks in the market, they are the ones from whom this virus and this ultimate and epidemic will emerge. Yeah. And how does that work that uh, it can then shift to become something that that's transfers a just, from one human to another? It, it becomes just a genetic mutation where just some of the genes just normally mutate or one type of influenza that's not amenable to spreading from human to human infects someone who also is infected simultaneously with a virus that can spread from human to human. And you have exchange of genes of those two viruses, and that's called reassortment. So you could reassort genetically and then get a less efficient virulent virus to become a more efficient spreading virulent virus. And that's the fear that you have in this case. Exactly. If this disease comes to the United States, what are the ways it can get here? Well, it's very easy. It's jet travel. What will happen is that someone will be in, in Asia, in China, and in Hong Kong, and in Indonesia, wherever, uh, Vietnam, Thailand. They'll get on a plane. They'll start coughing and sneezing, and someone will wind up getting infected, and that's how it's spread. In, in, particularly in the age of, of jet travel, where you can be in Asia uh, one day, and then 13 to 15, 18 hours later, you're in New York City or Washington or Boston. Who's mostly at risk from this? Well, uh, anyone's at risk from getting infected, but the people who are at risk for the complications are young infants from the age of six months to 23 months, elderly individuals greater than 65 years of age, people with chronic diseases like asthma, heart disease, lung disease, people who are taking drugs that suppress their immune system, uh, as well as People like myself who are healthcare people, people who are physicians who take care of patients because you continually get exposed. That's right. In the big 1918 pandemic, one of the problems was all the healthcare workers were sick, right? Well, not only the healthcare workers, there was a problem with, the, with 1918 is that young people died very rapidly from that also because it was a very virulent form of the infection. So when you get a pandemic flu, there's certainly no guarantee that just the people at high risk for complications will get complications. We lost a lot of young, healthy people during the 1918 pandemic. Okay. So what are the measures that we should take? You you run the National Institutes of Allergy and Infectious Disease. What are you saying that we should do um, as a society uh, in your role in government to protect the public, assuming that this flu will be coming at us sometime in the next year? Well, there are, there are a couple of major general categories. There's general public health measures like keen surveillance, both in Asia and here, so that you can detect it early and implement the public health measures. And that might be, for example, keeping people from crowded places, taking a look at the possibility of school closures, restrictions of activities, quarantines, isolations, and things like that. Hopefully it would never come to that. That's a public health measure. Um, if you look at the research measure, the things that we do at the NIH, what we've done several months ago was to isolate the H5N1 and start to develop what we call a seed or a reference virus for a vaccine. 
that vaccine is now being made in pilot lots that will be ready. One group will be ready at the end of December and the other group will be ready at the end of March or early April, at which point we'll do a clinical trial to determine the safety and what kind of dosage you would use. And we also are already jumping ahead and contracting with a company to make at least 2 million doses of vaccine against the H5N1 flu. So that, in fact, if it does emerge to the point of spreading from person to person, will have a very big head start on the development of a vaccine to give us that immunity that would ultimately reduce our vulnerability. Now, what about quantity? You say the government's planning to have perhaps a couple of million doses of this available. We're close to 300 million people in this right. country. There, there are two types of vaccine doses that you make. There's the pilot lots that I mentioned early on, which are about 8,000 to 10,000 per lot to use in a clinical trial. And then when you commercially scale up the ability to make the virus vaccine, and in this case, if you go to 2 million the mechanics that go into allowing you to make 2 million doses automatically scales you up that you can surge that to tens of millions of doses much more readily than if you just were aiming at a few thousand doses. Who's going to do this? I mean, we've just looked at a flu vaccine disaster this fall, really. What It got outsourced to a company, to Britain, and much of the batch was contaminated. Right. The company now. that is making the two million doses is Aventus Pasteur, the company that is now successfully getting us the vaccine that we're using this year, the company that did not have a problem. What about the government doing this? I mean, as I understand it, there's not much money in vaccine production. Um, this is a public health service. Well, the government needs to partner with industry, but we know from a number of experiences that you really don't want to dissociate yourself completely from industry. The expertise is there. The capabilities is there. We need to incentivize the industry to get involved seriously in vaccine development and vaccine production because the government just is not good at making these kinds of quantities of countermeasures for viruses. It's, it's a marriage between and a partnership between government, industry, and academia that will get us there in a very effective way. Now, how does the situation compare with the way past uh, pandemics have spread? Well, again, in the 20th century, there have been three major pandemics, one totally catastrophic in 1918, in which 20 to 40 million people worldwide died and a half a million people died in the United States. The next one was in 1957, which was much less dramatic in its effect. And then there was another one in 1968. So every few decades, you can get a pandemic flu in which there's no immunity in the, in the community, be it in the United States or worldwide. When experts say that it is inevitable that sooner or later we're going to get another one, that I, I believe is true. And this year is your highest level of concern? Well, I'm not saying anything's going to happen this year. I think we're getting closer to the, what we all consider the inevitability of having a pandemic flu. It almost certain, you know, the chances of it happening this year are small. But the fact that there are so many flocks of birds infected in Asia, whereas a couple of years ago, there wasn't that widespread exposure that we're seeing 
we're getting closer to it. It's impossible to predict. The one thing about influenza that you know you just can't predict. Uh-huh. But given the number of birds and given the fact that each year the virus learns, as it were, how to be more efficient, we're not going in the right direction with the bird flu. And if you win with this, the public will never know, right? I mean, exactly. If-, if you don't get it and we do the right things, they'll never know. That's the nature of the job. Dr. Anthony Fauci is director of the National Institutes of Allergy and Infectious Diseases at the National Institutes of Health in Bethesda. Dr. Fauci, thanks for taking this time with me today. You're quite welcome. It's good to be here. Just ahead, metering mileage to collect a road tax. First, this note on emerging science from Jennifer Chu. Neuroscience confirms what ancient wisdom has long known, that the secret to mastering a new task may be to think less about it while you're doing it. In a recent study, researchers in the United Kingdom found that too much concentration can actually inhibit the learning process, making simple tasks unnecessarily complicated for an integral part of the brain. Volunteers in the study participated in a six-minute test during which they were asked to press a series of buttons that flashed on a screen in a repetitive pattern. One group of test subjects was encouraged to pick out and remember the pattern, while the other group simply had to relax and not worry about finding a pattern. Researchers monitored the brain activity of both groups during the test using MRI scans. After completing the task, the group that wasn't consciously looking for the pattern finished 40 milliseconds faster than the group that was trying to discern it. The findings suggest that those who weren't concentrating as hard actually learned the pattern more effectively. Researchers explain that this is due to the fact that concentration increases frontal lobe activity. And while the frontal lobe aids in the process of making quick decisions, it may in fact hinder certain types of automatic learning, such as the ability to determine patterns or sequences. Scientists note, however, that the level of concentration needed to learn is entirely dependent on the complexity of the task at hand. That's this week's note on emerging science. I'm Jennifer Chu. And you're listening to Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. With gas prices so high, it's even more difficult for governments to raise gas taxes that support road maintenance. So editorial pages in California and elsewhere have been, well, if not exactly a flame, they've been a kindle over a proposal to pay for wear and tear on the roads by electronically tracking just how many miles people drive and then charging them a fee per mile at the gas pump. And with me to explain this idea a bit further is Living on Earth's Western Bureau Chief, Ingrid Lobet. Hi there, Ingrid. Hi, Steve. So... Tell us more about this. Folks could be taxed by the mile. I think we've, I guess we've always been sort of taxed by the mile, haven't we? That's one way to look at it because there is kind of a hefty fee that every state charges on each gallon of gas, 18 cents a gallon in California and another 18 cents by the federal government. And that money goes or it's supposed to go to keep up with road wear. And back when cars all got similar miles per gallon, that worked out to be roughly equivalent to a tax per mile. But the people whose job it is to worry about roads in the future say that since that per gallon charge is not indexed to inflation and has not increased since 1990 and we're all driving more miles all the time, states just aren't taking in enough money to cover costs. And now with hybrid cars beginning to sell, I suppose, uh, since they require less gas, and in fact, there are even some, what, no gas cars on the horizon, states must be looking down the road, so to speak, and thinking, hmm, if our income is going to be linked to gas sales, we'll never be able to pay for our roads. Right, exactly. So they're looking for a way to change the way we fund public transportation and roads. Now, we've always had toll roads, but where did this idea of charging people for all the miles they drive come from? 
Well, apparently it's been around for many years, but the technology to make it work hasn't. But now with electronic toll booth reading and transponders, a lot of places are experimenting. In fact, one researcher, Brian Taylor of UCLA, has found 88 cases or places where there's some form of charging by the mile or road use already underway. And in Oregon, two researchers at the or- at Oregon State University came up with a way to get the GPS in a new car to communicate with an odometer to record. How many miles a car travels in Oregon, and that's going to allow Oregon to begin a pilot program next month that will charge people for their Oregon miles instead of taxing gallons of gas. And then, how do you get charged for the miles? Well, apparently there's more than one way you could be charged, but in Oregon it looks like you'll be at the gas pump, and the odometer miles will be sent to the pump via a small radio transmitter. So you fill up, and the regular gas tax that people would usually pay will be subtracted, and a fee per mile will be rung up instead. And California might try something similar. Yeah, that's right. People are talking about it here right now because Governor Schwarzenegger has chosen a new chief of the Department of Motor Vehicles, and she likes this kind of idea. And it's also part of the big new state reorganization plan that we have. But it's not even anywhere near the legislature yet. So, Ingrid, tell me,、um, under these scenarios,、uh, does everyone pay the same mileage charge or tax, regardless of the kind of vehicle they drive? Well, that's really a key question, and it hasn't been decided yet.、Um, some experts believe that the rates should vary by vehicle weight. Or by whether you're using a road at a peak time, London is experimenting with a system like that and has seen some real benefits in traffic and in air pollution. The idea that transportation experts have, at least, is that they'd really like to see people pay for their real use in a way that the payment naturally increases as use increases. What about privacy here, Ingrid? I mean, if there's a mileage system or a peak hour system, and especially under a system where something is tracking which roads you're driving on, I mean, wouldn't the government end up knowing an awful lot about where we're going? That is definitely a concern for some people in Oregon. They're very careful to say that their system is not going to know where you drive, but it will know when you cross the Oregon border. And it's not hard to imagine a judge giving law enforcement access to that information to investigate a crime, and perhaps the information could end up somewhere else. Ingrid Labette is living on Earth's Western Bureau, Chief. Thanks, Ingrid. You're welcome. <laughs> New Zealand was once a paradise of bird species found nowhere else in the world. Some, such as the hairy feathered nocturnal kiwi, still exist. Others, such as the seven-foot-tall flightless moa, have become extinct. And a few species hover somewhere on the margin. One of these is the South Island kakako, which New Zealander Rhys Buckingham calls the most beautiful songbird in the world. Many experts believe that the South Island kakako is gone. But Mr. Buckingham has devoted many years of his life to proving them wrong. Alan Cockle produced this audio diary of Mr. Buckingham's quest of hope and obsession, looking for the gray ghost. It's the resonance. The thing about the calls of South Island kakako, unlike any other bird call I've heard in the world, is they seem to be able to produce a natural resonance. The first time I heard it calling for such a long time was in the Capel's Valley in Fraser Stream, which is a tributary of the Capel's Valley in Fiordland. Twenty-fifth of the eleventh, eighty-three, flat above Top Capel's Hut. It called for two minutes.
couldn't believe it. I was virtually, I was hypnotised on the spot, and then I said to myself, hey, wait a minute, mate, I've got to find this bird. So I raced towards where this incredible call was coming from, and crossed a, a river, and it, there was quite a flow of water that day. It was after a lot of rain, so the river was as noisy as anything, but these bongs were as clear as a bell above the noise of the river. And then it stopped. It stopped just as I crossed the river. Hi, this is Rhys Buckingham, a freelance ornithologist from Mapua, Nelson, introducing a search for the rare endemic New Zealand bird, the South Island Kōkako. Today, the 17th of October 2000, we are beginning the expedition, which will cover a period of about three months and extend from the northern part of the South Island right through to the southwest corner, the bottom corner of Stewart Island. We are beginning here in the Operara Valley because of reports in the past five or so years. Quite close to this area, I heard calls which I believed were from South Island Kōkaku. And importantly, these calls were an answer to tapes, recorded calls of North Island Kōkaku. You get this call when you've got the bird in the hand and you're swinging it upside down. <laughs> it's a degree more, I think, than the last in terms of alarm. This beautiful bird is a bluey grey colour, larger than a tui with a distinctly longish tail. But its main feature, if one's close enough to see it, is a pair of fleshy wattles. And to the early New Zealanders, the pioneers of ornithology, this bird was called the orange wattled crow. This is really the basis now of South Island Kōkāko survey. We try and do something just similar to what they're doing to survey areas with North Island Kōkāko. They're called walk-through surveys, where you just walk on a route, just playing tapes or whatever, and luring a Kōkāko. As you can see, nothing wants to answer it here, so we better move on. The first incidents where I thought, wow, Kokako may exist. I had spent so much time tramping through Fiordland. I was sceptical when I when people spoke of South Island Kokako or any other rare bird for that matter, because I'd spent lots of years of just tramping around. I'd heard nothing. And then at the head of Lake Monowai, and I think it was nineteen seventy-seven. I heard this call last thing just before nightfall coming from the head of Lake Monowai. A beautiful, ringing call, and I'd never heard anything like it. It was like a cathedral bell endlessly tolling. I don't know how long the call went on, but it was a long time. And my immediate thought then, that must be Kōkāku. What I could possibly do is look somewhere. I'll have the original tape. Really valuable tapes. Original bomb chorus cables. Here it is. 
whether it'll still play or not. It's pretty old. Let's try. Stop it first. We've actually got another recording from um, report from exactly the same site three years ago. Oh, beautiful long-tailed cuckoo. It's not that loud. Oh, there it is. Just that now. It should be followed by an unusual double note. That's it. Both of those. That is the very original. And that particular note is the one we want. You can string them together with a space between them if you like to make them sound like as they normally do in the field. This one just did this one note. It does that sometimes. Copy of alleged South Island Kokako calls. One. 18th of October 2000, Glenroy River. This is where an intensive search for South Island Kokako has been carried out in the last five or six years. The main thrust of our effort was in setting up six automatic surveillance cameras. Unfortunately, we failed to get a photograph of South Island Kokaka. Never mind, we heard some very interesting calls. Probably the most interesting was a single hollow kind of note. It was very deep sounding and quite ghostly really. Alleged South Island Kokaka. Two. So it was extremely mysterious. But after all, we're searching for a very, very mysterious bird. The first sighting was in Fraser Stream. And that was in 1983. I was a wee way off. The bird ran up this log. I've never seen a bird before or since run that way. It wasn't like anything else. It just ran. It didn't hop. just ran. And then it paused. It was a large bird. And I got out my binoculars. And then it just hopped away. It disappeared. But it called shortly after it disappeared. And I was fairly confident that was a kokaka. Single tong note, kokaka basin, dusk, 1st of December 1986. Twenty second of October. I took off quite early by myself today and headed to Moria Gate and from there up ridges southeast. Pretty wild, steep country. Not a iota of a sign of Kokako today. 
the draining times, the really psychologically draining times, are simply those times of long periods of times when nothing much happens. You're playing tapes and nothing responds. You're giving up. You're feeling, am I wrong even? Click call recorded at dawn, 3rd of December 1984. Well, I did another sequence coming up. The sequence here. Very close to the bird. Notice. No coughs and splutters that Tui do. That last call is a local dialect to an area in northwest Nelson where there were many records of South Island Kokaka and in fact, one of them should have been accepted. Two observers saw the bird, saw the orange wattles, heard the calls, described the calls exactly as we know them now. Confirmed sighting, in my opinion, 1972. So that's where, if people ask me what's the last confirmed record of South Island Kōkākā, I think it's 1972 or 1971 anyway. Somewhere in Southland, someone had taken a photograph of this bird and it was taken at a, on a picnic table, the bird was on a picnic table. But there was no question or doubt that that bird, because Robert Fowler wouldn't make a mistake like that, he's one of our most prestigious and well-known ornithologists, because he himself had seen the slide. In fact, the slide showed clearly the orange wattles, but this slide disappeared. We know that the photographer was called Blanchard, because Robert Fowler referred it as the Blanchard slide and he said it completely disappeared. I think this guy Blanchard died and that he was trying to get a hold of it from the estate, but it was never found. It's probably 1950s we're looking at now, but it would be the most recent photograph of South Island Kōkākā. Maybe it's actually the only photograph. November 2000. Yesterday at 5.30 I decided to go for a wander up the valley and then up a ridge. It was on this ridge I played a tape of juvenile North Island Kōkākal and then heard, to my amazement, the most beautiful of all calls that Kōkākal can make. It's a series of cathedral-like bongs with an ambience and a resonance. It's quite startling. Ethereal is probably the best way of describing these calls. And this bird was quite a long way away, probably 600, 800 metres away. But the ringing nature of the call was staggering. And it kept calling constantly about the rhythm of a cathedral bell tolling. The tuis and the bowbirds around were just going berserk. They had been quite quiet. Everything had been very ordinary. But after this bird called in the distance, the tuis and the bowbirds started making alarm calls and general chattering. It was quite staggering. I tried to get recordings of all this, but the wind was just a bit too high and the microphone was too sensitive. 
so then of course after well it probably the call lasted for three four minutes five minutes it was a very long sequence I got a compass bearing and headed off in that direction but that was it the bird had run out of steam and I thought well this is big country in here what chance have I of seeing a bird that's probably only one or two left here in this area so it's going to be a matter of patience just persevere keep coming back and one day surely our luck must change our search for the South Island Klakauko bird of New Zealand continues in just a minute stay tuned to Living on Earth Support for NPR comes from NPR stations and Ford, maker of the Escape Hybrid, a full hybrid SUV able to run on electric power alone at certain speeds. FordVehicles.com backslash environment. The Noyce Foundation, dedicated to improving math and science instruction from kindergarten through grade 12. The Annenberg Fund for Excellence in Communications and Education. And the Kellogg Foundation, helping people help themselves by investing in individuals, their families, and their communities on the web at wkkf.org. This is NPR, National Public Radio. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. The major parts of New Zealand are its South and North Islands. And the North Island Kokauko, commonly known as the Blue Wattled Crow, is considered highly endangered, but it is seen from time to time. But its close relative, the South Island Kokauko, or Orange Wattled Crow, hasn't had a fully confirmed sighting since 1972, but it may well have been heard. We continue now with our audio diary, Looking for the Grey Ghost, by ornithologist Reese Buckingham and his companions, who have been searching for the South Island Kakauko in the jungles of New Zealand for almost two decades. Thank goodness for John Kendrick in many respects, otherwise perhaps I wouldn't be still going now. Wildlife Service sent him in as the consultant just to check how crazy I was. I thought, still on? They sent was basically this guy whose streets ahead of nearly everyone else in the country on bird calls, bush bird calls in particular. And then they ended up, they didn't even believe John Kendrick. I just flown in with Bill Black on the helicopter in the little Anglin branch of the Freshwater River on Stewart Island. We called this particular one around camp we called Ghost Bird. And John flew in by helicopter. It was raining quite heavily, so we went inside the tent. He was dead keen, very eager to hear the recordings I'd made. We were playing these tape recordings back in our tent. Reese, young Adams and myself, the three of us making up the party. And as I was playing on the recordings in the tent... These interesting calls were peeling out from the recorder when all of a sudden... The bird outside responded right above the tent. An exact replica of what we were playing on the tape. John disappeared out of that tent so quickly... Burst through the tent. There was a sort of a ripping noise. Right through our mosquito netting. And we looked up in the rimu. We looked. We walked around the rimu tree. Strange. We spent half an hour looking in the tree without sight or sound of this darn bird. That absolutely epitomises the difficulty of finding the birds. You hear them, but you don't see them. This is one interesting thing about Kokaka. You can actually identify it from the single feature, that it can call loudly, very close, but you don't see it. It's often a good way of attracting little birds in, 
these squeaky note noises. There's a little tomtit, so we've got brown creepers, probably about six to eight brown creepers, silver eyes, tomtits, chaffinch, bellbird, tui. There's a blackbird singing and a grey warbler. It's a great spot. I started getting interested in birds before, I think, yeah, a little bit before I became convinced about Kokako. Oh, Kaka. Oh, two, two. I can hear two. That time ago I was perhaps a wee bit cautious myself and wondering, well, is, is the evidence strong enough? Are these birds really here? And about, say, 18 years ago, by 18 years ago I was totally convinced and nothing's changed since then. Go 500 hours, 3.12.84. Gorgia Creek Terrace. When that bird is calling, when that bird starts calling out there, that bird is there, there's the excitement, the challenge begins. It's just when that bird is vocally active, searching for South Island Kokaka then becomes a real obsession. Five deer bark or bock call. 2nd of December 1984 6 bubble call recorded on the same evening 6. and then I set up my best stereo record system carry up the tree with the camera if you can visualise all this this was the setup. Gary was just up there and I went away about 100 metres now two of the calls I heard were unmistakable, unequivocal they were the organ like calls definitely Kokaku all the rest of them and the ones happened to be around the main record tape recorder were oddities such as the steer bark such as a loud click and I think there were some other odd calls that night too but I heard these beautiful Kokaku like calls which didn't get recorded as well as one very hollow note right above my head. Really loud. It was about three times louder than the loudest Tui call I've ever heard. And yet Kerry, who's not very far away, didn't hear a single thing and it wasn't recorded. So one can assume only one thing. These calls were incredibly directional and probably those particular ones that weren't recorded were aimed at me. Kokako has quite short, rounded wings. Three, mew and wing beats. Little Mount Anglin branch of freshwater, November 1984. Often it's broken like... Oh, sorry, yeah, that's you is the fine. Mm-hmm. Perfectly done. How would you score it? 10 out of 10? Oh, did you do most of it? Granville State Forest, 20th of November 2000. Arrived two days ago. Already in camp were Ron Nilsson and his son Kit. Well, he said Dave to me, I think it's time to look for feathers, he said. 
and he looked down instead of listening and looking up for a bird he just looked down and suddenly this feather appeared <laughs> just and he brought it back ron nelson was here kokako because they're uh, are very ancient birds they've been in new zealand for about 60 million years and their feather structure is just a little different from other birds so john darby who is uh then the Targa Museum took this feather and compared it with other feathers and back came the, the reply that it looks as though that it's uh, South Island Kōkāga. And uh, much later that particular feather were, went to Holland. Um, Possibly for DNA sequencing, yes. I'm not sure. And uh, was lost. So um, we can't even prove to this day that a feather was found on Stewart Island in 1987. I think if I add up, I would say three that i am got a high degree of certainty. Three that were Kōkāka. And the, probably about another six other sightings which possibly were Kōkāka. Probably my best, most certain sighting was on a very wet day. It was raining constantly. Not very heavy rain, but just medium rain and so I was wandering around and I carried a pair of binoculars but nothing else and I heard what I thought was the first tui I'd heard in this valley normally I'd hear this tui and walk on but something made me go to below where it was calling looked up and then I saw the bird and I still you know absolutely astonished is when I looked up it wasn't a tui it was a large bird it was grey in colour. In fact, where the light was showing on it, it was a silvery grey in colour. It took off with slow wing beats and flew in a laboured flight out of sight. And as soon as it started singing again, I actually thought, I must have been mistaken. I couldn't have seen anything but a tui because, again, it was singing. I was just trying to think that wasn't a kokako. It wasn't, it wasn't it was a tui. And then it flew again right above my head and it was then there was no question. On the instant of the sighting, I knew it wasn't a tui. As soon as it starts singing, it has to be a tui. That's how the mind works, I think. But when it flew above my head, there was no question it was a kokaka. But every note was a mixture of tui and bowbird. If I'd recorded that call, no one would have believed me. No one. I had a really enjoyable job working with North Island Kōkāko, which was, I think, in the end ongoing for a couple of years or three years. And it was South Island Kōkāko season, so I just left that job and and just went voluntary looking for South Island Kōkāko. I considered it was really essential to try and save that bird from extinction. So, yes, I've missed out economically, but in other ways I don't think I've missed out anything. I've been privileged to be working with a bird that's just so remarkable. So I don't think I've missed out on anything. There's various ways of finding it. You can be idiots like me who 
wander in the bush playing tapes for 21 years and still haven't found the unequivocal evidence. Or you can go and talk to a number of different people in the hopes that one of them actually already has that unequivocal evidence. The first time I seen them, I went back a couple of times before I actually seen them again. And then after that I kept going back because I was working in that area. So now and then you get really good reports that you have to follow up. They were there late September 98. Looked and seen a bird that I hadn't seen before, way up in the tops of the tree. We get hundreds of reports. I try to interview when I've got time. Quite a large bird, bluey-grey colour. And um, the bush where it is is quite dark. <clears throat> it was hard to pick out the first couple of times. Quite often I listen to the reports or even hear their evidence if they've got tape recordings, video, and it, and it turns out to be a tui or something common, but that's fine. But sometimes you get one that is different and kind of staggeringly different. But the noise that it made was like nothing I ever heard before. To me it's like a sort of a scary noise, ghosty noise. He was giving the descriptions of the birds he had seen and the calls he had heard. I thought, oh yes, it sounded like it was probably tui or kaka. So uh, I just took it from there and just kept going back until I managed to catch the noise and tape record it. During the interview he brought this recording out and played it and I just about fell off the chair. There was just no question. It was unequivocal kokako organ song and not just one minute of it there'd be two or three minutes of full song full loud song absolutely definite when I tape recorded it and had people listen to the tape recorder no way it was a tui that call just mesmerised me I thought wow I hope he gives me a copy of this call I had copied it to give Reese a copy and um and what happens I lost the house. Poor guy's the house, house burns down. We lost everything and the tapes actually went with it. <laughs> that was the unequivocal evidence of the presence of South Uncle Kaka after 21 years. <laughs> End of story. But um, they've got to be still there somewhere. There's a lot of scepticism and a lot of people here who don't believe us, but they haven't really been involved. Well, I've just got back from Weston, and Korkako 2000 will have to become Korkako 2001 now. But I need a little bit of a rest. Twenty-two years ago, we really didn't have very much more than we've got now. We haven't come up with a photograph. We haven't come up with a, a really good recording. And it's understandable. A lot of people are going to be sceptical and think that I'm just on a wild goose chase, a tangent.
this feeling that I've spent a lot of time on South Island Kōkākau and I am getting weary, it's, it's getting tiring, it's psychologically very demanding. You just sort of keep going, thinking, well, our luck's got to get better. Uh, good morning. We're walking up Alexander River in the Grey Valley, West Coast, Buller region. And it's the 13th of April, 2002. And we're having a search for South Island Kōkākō. So, okay, do I believe in ghosts? <laughs> I could say I believe Kokako. They're out there, all right. Our documentary, Looking for the Grey Ghost, was produced by Alan Cockle. We share the planet with more than exotic birds and human beings, and we all probably have a few stories about close encounters with our other fellow Earthlings. Well, we're all ears here at Living on Earth. We want to hear your stories. We invite you to send them to us in a brief recording. Just visit livingonearth.org for complete directions. We'll tell you how to make a recording, which could be as simple as picking up the telephone and making a call like this hiker did. A few years ago, I was in Baxter State Park. I took a nap before climbing up Mount Katahdin. I left my camp moccasins outside the cabin. When I woke up, a squirrel had stolen my shoes. So what's your story, your experiences and feelings about the world we all share? A selection of stories and excerpts will be chosen for production and posted online and may be broadcast. This is not a contest. There are no winners or losers. This is simply a call for self-expression from those who share our deep interest in the environment and the relation we all share with it. Visit livingonearth.org for complete directions and sample stories. That's livingonearth.org. Or you can write us for directions at stories, Living on Earth, 20 Holland Street, Somerville, Massachusetts, 02144. Living on Earth is produced for the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Eileen Belinsky, Jennifer Chu, Susan Shepard, and Jeff Young, with help from Kelly Cronin. Our interns are Jenny Cecil Moore, Jen Goodman, and Steve Gregory. Special thanks to Ernie Silver. Allison Dean composed our themes. Al Avery runs our website. You can find us at livingonearth.org. I'm Steve Kerwood. Thanks for listening. 
Funding for Living on Earth comes from Ford, maker of the Escape Hybrid SUV, uniting SUV versatility with environmental responsibility. Details at FordVehicles.com. The National Science Foundation, supporting coverage of emerging science. And Stonyfield Farm, organic yogurt, smoothies, and cultured soy. 10% of profits are donated to efforts that help protect and restore the earth. Details at Stonyfield.com. Support also comes from NPR member stations and the Ford Foundation for reporting on U.S. environment and development issues and the William and Flora Hewlett Foundation for coverage of Western issues. This is NPR, National Public Radio.